You're listening to our weekly podcast, Getting in the Word with Stuart Guthrie. Stuart is the teaching pastor of Family Bible Fellowship of Ridgeville in Early Branch, South Carolina. We hope to grow together with you, seeking real knowledge from the truth, the Word of God. Here's Stuart. Well, good morning, everybody. Uh, I want to start real quick uh, and give a little introduction here. We have a special guest with us this morning, Jaron Jackson. Uh, we're going to do things a little bit differently this morning and getting in the word uh, because we do expect that we'll have uh, quite a few people that are interested in joining and, and maybe uh, asking some questions of Jaron when we're completed. Uh, so the way we're going to do that today is we're going to do that by a raise of hands. Uh, we're going to keep the chat muted when he's concluded. We're going to give about 30 minutes. We want to be respectful of his time. Uh, we'll give about 30 minutes, and uh, we're, we're going to ask that when you do ask a question, you keep it to a minute or less uh, so that we can continue to keep things moving, and, and he has time to answer the question uh, to the best of his ability, uh, and uh, we can get as many people in as we want. Uh, so uh, I'm going to hand this over to you, Jaron, if you want to pray to get us started. I was going to do it, but uh, I, I'm, I'm looking at you, and I think you look eager. So uh, it's good to see you this morning, brother. Thanks for joining us. We really appreciate it, and uh, I'm going to hand this on over to you. Amen. Can you hear me? I can hear you loud and clear. Okay. So my, my sound is good and everything? You sound wonderful. Okay. I'm good with the video not being nice looking, but the audio is what's, what's important. Um, well, you're, you're a handsome fella. <laughs> hey, what's good up? Good morning, beautiful. Hey, you want to take over? I can, I can go. No, 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 no. I'm, 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 I'm in, uh, I'm busy. I just wanted to say I appreciate you. <laughs> okay. love you, brother. And uh, I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I'm driving in busy traffic, so I'm gonna let y'all have at it. And uh, thank you, brother. Love you and appreciate you. Okay. All right. Love you. God bless. Hey, uh, I want to honor God uh, first and foremost. Please bow with me. Uh, God, we love you. Uh, good morning. Thank you for your word. Thank you for your gospel. Uh, get me out of the way and talk to your people. Love you very much. Thank you for Jesus. It's in his name we pray. Amen. Uh, good morning, everybody. My name is Jaron Jackson. I do want to say thank you to Pastor Stewart, my brother in Christ. I love him very much uh, for giving me what is functionally his digital pulpit. Um, I don't do this often, and so I want to be very respectful of him and his people and what God has provided him. And I, uh, first and foremost, it's it's God's platform. It's it's always a privilege and a duty and a blessing to preach the word. Um but to, to do so under um, under the permission of of a man like Stuart Guthrie, um, I love him. I love his family. Um, and I, I just hope that they are having a good break and a good rest. I want to talk to you about the only thing that matters in this case, and that is the gospel of Jesus Christ. Um, anytime I'm asked to, to preach or teach or do anything, I'm always going to go to First Corinthians 3, First uh, Corinthians chapter 15, verse 3 through 4. Uh, I want to introduce... The way that I do things, um, since I, I don't do this for a living, I don't preach for a living, uh, I want to make sure that you all know my methodology, which is expository preaching. I preach the word. I don't care about me or my stories. I don't care about how smart I can try to make things. I care about what the word says. And honestly, I think that there's a lot more uh, about just getting into the word uh, than hearing some guy talk about how he thinks it should come across. Uh, with that, I want to speak about what this uh, passage is and the reason why I go to it so much um, by way of introduction. Um, there is something that whenever uh, I started getting into a more mature walk in my faith, I would start to get into uh, what's called Christian apologetics, Christian apologetics. And 
without going down the rabbit hole, 1 Corinthians 15 verses 3 through 4, actually 3 through 8, is one of the greatest um, examples of uh, a defense and evidence for the Christian faith that we have. Um, that the way that this would have come across before the manuscripts were written was such that people would have had this memorized. They would have said this repetitiously. Uh, in fact, in the Hebrew and in the Greek, there is a, and I don't speak either one, but there is a, an undulation. There is a rhythm. There is a pattern. There is an ability to say these things as though they flow, as though they are facilitated by the memory. And so if you think about first century Christian, Christianity, whether you are in Judea and you are a former Jew coming into Christianity, or you are the Church of Corinth, which is a Greek Gentile under the control of the Roman Empire uh, situation, um, it would have been good to know what was of primary importance. And that's what Paul says here in first Corinthians 15, verse three through four. So I want to start there. Again, our passage for today is just the two scriptures but you'll see it's a lot more. Um, 1 Corinthians 15, verse 3 through 4. And uh, unlike Pastor Stewart, uh, I don't know how long my notes are going to go for. So uh, strap in because <laughs> uh, I, don't, I don't know what's, uh, how long it's going to go for, but we're going to preach the word. Uh, for I deliver to you a first importance. I'm, I'm fighting out of the ESV. Um, uh, for I delivered to you of first importance what I have also what I also received that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures that he was buried that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. Pretty pretty cut and dry, pretty straightforward. Now what I want to do is I want to first identify just go word for word, word for word. That's that's what expository preaching is. Um, whenever we look at four. Four is a conclusion. It's the intensification of what has been described. So we don't just randomly approach here. In fact, whenever you pull up the word, you need to understand who it's written to, who it was written by, and what was the intent of that passage of who first received it. See, 1 Corinthians was not written to 21st century Jaron Jackson. It was not written to 21st century Telegram audience person. It was written to 1st century member of the Church of Corinth. Paul himself planted the church of Corinth. We get this back in Acts uh, chapter 18, when Paul is actually going around on his missionary journey. And he's actually in Macedon, and or Macedonia, depends on how you say it. But uh, Macedonia, he's speaking to the Jews. And the Jews are like, we don't care about what you say. The Bible says that they reviled him. When Paul was preaching the gospel to the synagogues in Macedonia, uh, the Jews in that church, in that synagogue, reviled him because he was bringing the gospel. The Bible says in uh, Acts, uh, uh, Acts 11, he says, fine, I will go to the Gentiles. So the first place that Paul goes is Corinth. So you have Macedon, the synagogue. The Jews are saying, we don't like what you're preaching. We revile you for preaching it. So where Paul preached, it was either revival or revolution. Amen. And so when Paul was leaving the Macedonian uh, synagogues, he says, I'm going to leave you and I'm going to go to the Gentiles. The first place he goes is to the city of Corinth and he plants the church there. Now, Paul, I want to start off. Who is Paul? It says It says here, for I delivered to you. Oh, stop. So if, if he's saying for, he's intensification. He's identifying the thing that he's going to talk about, right? We're in chapter 15. There's a previous 14, right? So we're going to we're gonna get to that in here in a second. But it says, for I delivered to you. So who's the I and who's the two? And what does delivered mean? The I is Paul, the apostle to the Gentiles. Romans eleven thirteen. 13, 
Paul is writing to the Romans and he describes himself, he calls himself the, the apostle to the Gentiles. So I think about this and I'm like, well, what does apostle mean? Like a lot of people like to call themselves apostles. A lot of people like to call them all sorts of things. Just because you say that you are doesn't mean that you are. You need to understand what the truth is, what the Bible says. And in this whole thing, we need to understand, let the Bible explain the Bible. Let the Bible explain the Bible. Apostles come from the Greek apostoletos. I'm American. I don't speak Greek. I don't speak Hebrew. I'll look it up and I try to push it through. Make the worst. I'm Oklahoman. So uh, it, it says it, it's, it's someone who is sent with orders, which means it's someone who is doing something on behalf of someone else. That someone with authority told that one person to go and do the thing that they told them to do. So if you're an apostle, you are sent from a location. Um, so it's specifically in the Bible, it's specifically someone chosen by Christ. Someone who walked with Christ. How do we know that? Again, let the Bible explain the Bible. Acts chapter 1, verse 21. This is Peter, uh, you know, right after Christ's ascension. Peter recognizes, hey, Judas is dead because he's a godless commie and he uh, betrayed Jesus Christ. And he, uh, you know, he was a traitor. And so um, he's in hell and we need someone else. Peter writes, or, you know, Acts chapter 1, verse 21. Acts 1, 21. Acts one twenty one says, So one of the men who have accompanied us during all the time that Lord Jesus went in and out among us, right? Beginning with the baptism, this is verse 22, beginning with the baptism of John until the day when he was taken up from us. One of these men must become with us a witness to his resurrection. So right there, Peter is, is, is specifying. It's someone that's been with Jesus on his earthly ministry since the beginning when Jesus was baptized by John and was a witness to the resurrection. That's what an apostle is. If you are not that, you are not an apostle. If you are not that, you are not an apostle, according to the Bible. Let the Bible speak about the Bible. Let the Bible explain the Bible. So here uh, we're talking about it's someone who accompanied Jesus, walked with him, was there with his baptism, was there all the way and witnessed the resurrection, witnessed, observed, saw, has proof of. That's important. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 15 later on, we're not going to get there, but he says that if Christ doesn't rise from the grave, then our faith is in vain. Who cares about Jesus Christ? Who cares about anything that he said? Who cares about the miracles that he did? Who cares about anything about Jesus? If that, if he didn't rise from the grave, who cares? Our faith is in vain. It's superfluous. It's worthless. Paul authored 13 books in the New Testament. Some think that he authored the book of Hebrews. But if you go from 1 Corinthians to the book of Philemon, that's all Paul. So if you get rid of Paul, you're getting rid of a, of a major chunk of the New Testament canon. You're getting rid of a major chunk of what the gospel is, how it applies, who it's for, how to think, how to, how to, how to read the scriptures. Paul was uh, educated by Gamaliel, Acts 22, verse 3 says, uh, you know, he was learning at the foot whenever he's testifying to the Jews in Jerusalem. He says, I'm a student of Gamaliel. Well, you might think, well, I don't really care about Gamaliel. He's just some Bible name, right? Who cares about Gamaliel? Gamaliel was the leader rabbi. He was the respected, honored rabbi in Acts chapter 5, verse 34. Whenever this new gospel presentation is coming up, Gamaliel says, hold on, let's not go kill them. If it's from God, it'll succeed. If it's not from God, it'll peter out. So Gamaliel had the perspective to recognize that contrary messages 
were ones that, hey, if if God's for that message, it's going to survive. If God's not against that message or if God's against that message, it's going to die out. So when Paul says he's from Gamaliel, he's taught from Gamaliel. He's speaking about his line as a Jew, his line. It's like the it's like Harvard on crack. It's like if you could imagine someone who's dignified with a diploma and degrees and the best suit and the most clean shaven face, the, the best person would have had this tutelage, would have had this educational and academic background. This is Paul. We are learning from Paul. We are right. We are reading the letters from Paul. Paul says, for I delivered to you, delivered is para diomo, para id omi, para id omi. Again, I speak American. This delivered is that you're giving into someone's hands. It's a personal contact. It's not something that you catch like COVID. It's not just a, a random here or there. It is a purposeful giving. It is a transference that is with deliberation and with purpose. So whenever someone is delivering something, there is a purpose, there is a mission, there, there is a fulfillment to be done as we're doing this. He, uh, this, uh, this, this word also says that it's about giving one's power to do something. I'm giving you power to do with what you have just now received. So it's not just, hey, here's a whatever. It's here is a thing as though I'm purposefully on mission to accomplish this thing. And now that I've delivered it, you have the power to do with the thing that you have now received. This was a known relationship. Paul knew the church of Corinth. Of course, I already said that he planted it. Sometimes whenever you do research and you got your notes, you go out of, you go out of sequence because you just kind of go. Um, but that's where I'm at. Uh, what I want to do here is I want to first understand that Paul delivered this message. God delivers his word. God orders things. God made things, divided things, and called it good. Genesis 1, Genesis 2, that's the story of the creation. That's the story of God dividing Anyone says that God's a God of unity and uh, everyone, let's just all come together. No, 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 no. Let's let's obey God's word and understand his order. God has an order. God has a purpose. Right. Why is this important? Because God puts stuff into place and and the almighty God who created all things, who did so deliberately and organized them the way that he did, is now delivering through Paul, his chosen apostle, the gospel. On purpose. For a reason. Delivered. Right. Genesis 3.15, this is uh, that famous verse. There's a fancy word for it. I'm not going to say it. People who are academified in the Bible like to say stuff that's big, fancy words. I'm not going to say that. Genesis 3.15, this is God talking to the serpent. He says, I will put enmity, enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. This is the first time. This is the first prophecy in the Bible. The first prophecy in the Bible is about Jesus Christ coming through uh, a virgin born virgin uh, because it's it's the seed of a woman women don't have seed amen don't matter if you're transgendered or not it's god made woman and man he did not make all sorts of garbage in between so a woman doesn't have a seed except for here virgin born that so that was a prophecy of the virgin born it's a prophecy that god is going to conquer satan through someone who's going to be virgin born and so this idea is that god has said here's how things are going to be God has delivered what will happen. Here is my plan. Here is what I'm going to do. Here is the delivering. Now do stuff with that. Not pivot from it. Not try to build on your own. Not try to make your own. Here is what God's going to do. Um, I have a good friend who's a Jewish rabbi. 
So he doesn't know Jesus. He doesn't believe the gospel. He knows the gospel, does not believe the gospel. Isaiah 53, Isaiah 53. This is the Jew stumping chapter of all the Bible. The Jews will recognize today, modern day Jews will recognize the authority of scripture. They'll recognize the authority of the Old Testament, I should say. They can't, they can't deal, they can't hang with Isaiah 53. Isaiah 53 is a stupefying, is a Jew stupefying chapter. In this chapter, it says, um, who has believed? It starts out, who has believed what he has heard from us? Other versions, King James is this, who has uh, believed the report that we have delivered? So the report that we've delivered, there, there is something about a message that's being delivered that brings order and purpose and is the way that God has done stuff. Verse five said that he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him, the chastisement brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. By his wounds, we are healed. The idea is that Isaiah 53 is definitely pointing to Jesus. And there's Jews today, straight up Old Testament Jews that will deny Jesus, deny the gospel, and they look Isaiah 53 in the face, and they just, if you want, ever want to see a Jew be a gymnast, have them try to understand and interpret Isaiah 53 for you. Um, what I want to do now is, is, is so this next idea of first importance. So I have delivered to you, who's the you, the church of Corinth. We get in the earlier part of this chapter who the church, church of Corinth was. Chapter 5 talks about a son having sex with his mom, right? Like, and it was so bad that people who were pagans looking at people in the church and all the sex that was going on in the church was looking at the church going, whoa, that's wrong. And this is the type of stuff that you have to think that the, the fertility cults, the, the, uh, the prostitutes, the, the, uh, the sex that was going on in first century. I mean, the, the time of this writing, Paul is, you know, you, know, you could make a case. He's, he's at uh, Ephesus. This is 55 AD. Well, the dude who's in charge of Rome is a guy named Nero. Nero was in love with this boy who he castrated and called his wife. So you had transgenderism in first century all the way to the very top. The guy who called himself God, Nero. So Nero is having sex with a boy who's castrated, calls himself his wife. And this is the culture that we're speaking about. This is the culture that's going on. And Corinth would have been a trading town. It would have been on the, the isthmus of Greek, connecting the, the body of Macedon and the, and the, 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 the Aegean under, underneath. And it would have been a canal. It, it would have been like this, this canalized commerce. It would have been prolific and rich, big temples. These temples, they would have hired and had thousands of priestesses. And these priestesses would go out at night and have sex with everybody. And so why would you worship the God? Because you, had to have, you get to have sex with the priests priestess you get to have all sex all over the place and so the sex all over the place is who this is being delivered to you know, it's basically like san francisco plus sodom plus like all this like all this godlessness this really horrible place like an elementary school teaching crt and transgenderism but like times a billion now in this letter first corinthians 15 remember we're chapter 15 and the chapters weren't like part of the originals that was added much later on, but doesn't change the Bible, just allows us to organize our understanding of where we are, where we're at. First uh, Corinthians 15 includes first Corinthians one through 14. And so if Paul at, at 15 is saying, this is a first importance, what's the first importance? He's already talked about divisions in the church, ministry of apostles, sexual immorality, relations amongst believers, marriage, food, idolatry, service to God, God's order for man and woman, the Lord's Supper, spiritual gifts, how to love, prophecy in tongues, and how to worship. Paul's already talked about that in this letter, but here he says this is what's most important. So the one thing that's more important than all those things is what? What Paul's about to give him. 
what Paul's about to deliver. And he's already, he's already done this. He says in verse one, he's already reminded, you know, he's, he's already done this to people. And then he says uh, the next part, which I also received. So Paul also received this, which is very important, which is very important because the gospel is given. The gospel is a gift, not only in its, uh, in not only its manifestation for salvation, but also in its method of distribution. The gospel is not something that's dispensed in the sense that someone controls it and lets out a little bit. The gospel is its entirety. It is given. It is a gift. Everything about the gospel is a gift from God to us. Everything. So whenever you receive the gospel, it is because God has made it to where it is able to be given to you. And that way, whenever you go out and you give it to someone else, it's everything is an act of giving. The whole thing is an act of giving because it reinforces the fact that you receive salvation through the gospel. That word received is paralambano. Paralambano is to take with oneself, to receive with the mind. So you're not just taking it like this pen in my hand. You are inculcating. That's a fancy word for making part of who you are. It's, it's if you were trying to build a culture, you would inculcate something. So receiving the gospel is making it uh, paramount, something that is critical to who you are and how you think. I just turned my page, by the way. So we're halfway done with these notes. Unless I just keep going. Uh, so, so we want to go back to the scriptures. We want to get back to where he says, for I delivered to you a first importance, that which I also received. And then he says, that Christ died. Now, sometimes I just kind of glom over this. You and I, we benefit from 2,000 years of Christianity and church and Jesus-y and Christians. And yeah, 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 I got it, I got it, I got it, I got it, I got it. He died. Don't blow past that. Don't blow past any of this. That Christ died. This is the Church of Corinth. Corinth was Greek under the, under the Roman Empire, so they would have had all sorts of stuff. We are now in the Pax Romana, the peace of Rome. This would have been near the zenith of Rome's military, cultural, financial superiority. You are in the heart of the heart of the uh, military superpower of the known world. The military superpower of the known world. No one can beat these guys. You're now talking to these people. So it ain't just people chilling in Greece. It's people who are in the heart of the, of the strongest empire the world has known. And it's at the height of the power of the world has known. That's where they're receiving this. So there would have been other people in this Roman empire who would have also been writing stuff. So there would have been other propagandas, amen? There would have been other information sources. So what do you think are going in the eyes and in the ears for the domination, the key terrain of the mind of the church of Corinth? They are hearing all sorts of garbage. They see all sorts of religions, all sorts of histories, all sorts of narratives that are shaped to reinforce devotion and, 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 uh, and, and, and support of the Roman Empire, the Roman Caesars. Tacitus. Tacitus is a Roman historian. He was hostile. He hated Jesus. He had no incentive to like Jesus. And yet, Tacitus writes about the fact that a dude named Christus was crucified on a Roman cross in Jerusalem under the governance of Pilate. He called the faith in the resur resurrection superstitious and detestable. So here is a, get this, here is a, uh, a Roman historian who hates Jesus writing about the fact that Jesus rose from the grave. He says that belief in the resurrection was detestable. So unpack what that is. Here's all these competing narratives. And one thing that the narratives don't compete with is the fact that people believe that Christ rose from the grave. 
which means that Christ existed, which means that Christ was killed, which means that Christ rose from the grave. So already you have all sorts of other people who are hostile to the faith, who would actually want to suppress what that faith is, are admitting the fact that their faith was at least uh, so common that people who denied it and rejected it were admitting that that's what they were denying. Like you can't say that something doesn't exist without first, you know, acknowledging that the concept of that thing exists. Uh, Suetonius. Suetonius was says the, 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 the birth of Christ was so well known that it, 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 managed, it, it, it layered perfectly. He's another Roman, he's a, you know, another, another dude that doesn't, didn't believe the gospel. There's a lot of evidence that Pilate was the Roman governor, that there was unrest in Judea. The Romans attribute that to Christ. They attribute the, so the Roman history would have been all that stuff that went on in Judea went on because this dude named Jesus did stuff. So Jesus was doing stuff and that was making things unstable. And the people in Rome a long way away, the military superiority of the world would have known that stuff sucks in Judea because Jesus exists. Something about Jesus is making stuff bad. That's how they would have thought it. Then this one dude, Ambrosius Theodosius Macrobius. That's how you know it's Roman. This guy was a Roman prefect. He confirmed Herod's perversion and paranoia against the Hebrew babies. So remember way back when, at the beginning of the Gospels, whenever Jesus was born and Herod killed all the babies two years and under? Well, there's a Roman prefect who was an eyewitness to that, who he himself was the one doing the things. So so the, the historicity of Christ is, is not just from the Bible, though we don't need to go outside the Bible for anything else. So just rest assured that the evidence for Christianity is well, uh, well documented, more so than any other type of history. In fact, the crucifixion of Jesus Christ is the best uh, evidenced fact in all of antiquity. We know Jesus died. So don't just blow past the idea that Jesus died. No, 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 no. That was like the most popular, most well-known thing, best documented, right? Like most documented thing was the fact that Jesus Christ do died on a Roman cross. So then I got to think, what's the crucifixion? Crucifixion was invented by the Persians. It was perfected by the Romans. Sixth century BC is when the Persians, the Phoenicians came up with it. And then from that, the Romans took it and they perfected it. The Romans had 200 years to perfect this. So whenever the Bible says that uh, that Christ died, whoa, how did he die? How did he die? If you have kids, you probably don't want to hear it. If you have squeamish stomachs, you probably don't want to hear it. But we're going to. Amen. Um, this would have been used for Rome's disgraced soldiers, people who gave up in battle, cowards, the, the low of the low, the smucks, the rung, the bottom of the barrels. This would have been the, for the political opponents. Anyone who dared step up in front of Rome, they were going to humiliate them by hanging them on a tree and not just hanging them on a tree, but by prepping them for the devastating cruelty, not only of death, but suffering. It was designed to maximize suffering. It was compulsory scourging. They would have taken cat of, you know, the tail of, you know, cat of nine tails would have been uh, leather strips and metal fragments, bone fragments tied together like a, like a whip with nails that if you flung it onto someone's flesh would grab in. And whenever you ripped it off, it would literally be ripping off chunks of flesh. This would be preparing the body for what is to come. See, they had to scourge it. They had to maim it. They had to punch them. They had to, they shoved these crowns of thorns. I got this from a, from a friend. This is a bunch of thorns. I would have shoved this thing. Look at that thing. Look how long this thing is. They would have shoved that thorn deep into his head. 
Now, why would they have done that? That wasn't common. Oh, shoot. I can't do that. And that hurts. Of course, it wasn't common to put a crown of thorns on everybody else. They just did that for Jesus because they wanted to make extra special care that people knew that he claimed to be a king, but here he is dying on a cross. Right? The hemorrhaging, the dehydration, the hypervolemia. Do you know what hypervolemia is? When you lose 20% of your body's blood, you go into shock and everything just kind of goes, holy crap, I'm dying. Your body tells itself, system overdrive, everything starts working more and more. The fact that you're stung or you're hung up on a cross, you're nailed to a cross, means that your lungs are pulled apart and you can't breathe. So not only are you maimed and scourged, not only have you lost a fifth of your blood, but you're in a position now where you can't breathe. And so your heart starts working overtime, 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 and you can't breathe. So you can't breathe. Your heart's beating fast. You've lost a lot of blood. Your body's just in horrendous fashion. And of course, the asphyxiation doubles with the hypervolemia. So the fact that you've lost a lot of blood and you can't breathe, they start to have this compounded effect and they build on each other. They build on each other. They build on each other. The fact that your uh, acid in the, uh, the the blood would have built up because whenever you exhale, you're actually getting rid of carbon dioxide. But if you can't exhale, the carbon dioxide stays in your blood, elevates the acidity of your blood, which tenses the muscles and you can't do stuff. And not only that, but your whole back, your back has been scourged, it's been ripped apart, and so you're on this raw piece of wood pushing up on the fact that the nails are through your feet up and down and up and down. So you're literally rubbing your back more raw while you can't breathe and your heart is beating at many times faster than it's supposed to be. This is the death cycle. This is what Jesus went through. This is the death cycle. Now, when this happened, there's Roman guards that are there. The Roman guards, this penalty was so horrible that the Roman guards that were stationed there weren't allowed to leave until the guy died. Just standing there watching a guy die. You ever seen a guy die? You ever seen someone just keel over? This is what this is this is what happened. The Roman guards would would be relieved when they would stab him or when he would dead. So Christ. So this is how Christ died. But what is Christ? What is Christ? And remember, Church of Corinth, military superpower, you're hearing this, you got sex everywhere, idols everywhere. Who is Christ? Who is Christ? What is Christ? Christ means anointed. Genesis 3.15, we read that. This is where he's crushing the head and bruising the heel, which is to say that the way that Jesus died, get this, crushes the head of the serpent. What happens when you crush the head of the serpent? Does the serpent still live? No, it's dead. Its body might flap around and might do serpenty dead things. Like I cut the head off a chicken the other day and his body was like clucking, not clucking, but it was running around. Somehow it's like, even though you lop off the head and crush the head, it's no longer a danger, but it still flops around. You are facing a flopping serpent. Um, and then he's going to bruise the heel, bruising the heel. Yeah, you're going to cause a little bit of damage, but if my heel's bruised, my heart's good, my mind's good, my arms are good, I'm good to go. So Satan didn't really do nothing to Jesus at all. But Jesus crushed Satan. How did he do it? On the cross. Christ anointed Messiah, Mashiach is how you say it in the Hebrew. This is the future king, line of David. This is how God is going to establish his kingdom. Let's go to Isaiah chapter 11. Isaiah chapter 11. Uh, I can't find my tab. This is where you need to understand the books of the Bible. Amen. Isaiah chapter 11, as I cheat and look for my tabs. There we go. Isaiah chapter 11, verse uh, 3 and 4. Isaiah chapter 11, verse 3 and 4. 
keeping an eye on my time. Uh, and his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. He shall not judge by what his eyes see or decide dispute by what he hears. Verse four, but with righteousness, he shall judge the poor and decide the equity for the meek of the earth. And he shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth and he will breathe of his lips and he shall kill the wicked. The Jews, the Hebrews, uh, the, the Hebrews, the Israelites, the Jews are looking for a future Messiah. And the ones that don't believe the gospel are still looking. And it's like, dude, did you not see the most attested fact in all of antiquity? The fact that a guy named Jesus died on a cross? Jews, come on. Jews, let's go. So this is who they're looking for. They're looking for the king. They're looking for someone who will judge not by his, uh, not by what his eyes see, which means what? He knows something else. He knows something else. Now go to Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12. This is just... Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12, I've always used, but then I read the next verse, and it's just amazing. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12. For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and is discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. Discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. What does that sound like? That sounds like Isaiah chapter 11, when the Jews are looking for the Messiah, who will judge with things who aren't seen. Judge according to things that aren't seen. What aren't seen? The thoughts and intentions of the heart. Verse 13. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. What caught my eye the other day when I was reading this was that no creature is hidden. Nobody's hidden. Your thoughts, your innermost ideas, that sin that you know that you do, that no one else knows that you do, that you're really good at hiding, that no one else knows, even your wife or your husband or your closest friend. You may even deceive yourself. No, Jaren, it's not that big a deal. It's because it's, you know, it's, you've always done this. That is not that big a deal. No sin is hidden, but all are naked and exposed. If you look up that word exposed, the King James says opened. That word is the only time it's used in scripture. It comes from the Greek. It's about your trachea, the trachea tube. It's opened. This is giving the characterization that you are going to be so exposed and so known and that God knows exactly what you think and what you've done and everything all about you, that you are going to be naked and exposed. That word is about the trachea. What is the word of God going to do? You are going to be judged according to what the Bible says and everything's going to be known. So this is the Messiah that these Jews are looking for, but they can't find because they won't look at the cross. Psalm chapter 2 talks about the king. Go read Psalm chapter 2. When, when the nations rage and the nations are rising up against them, God laughs. He laughs. They ain't competing with him. Luke chapter 4, whenever Jesus goes to his hometown of Nazareth. So Jesus just got out of the wilderness. He was tested for 40 days. He came back to Luke chapter, he came back to Nazareth. And in Luke chapter 4, he reads the scroll of Isaiah chapter 61. He sits down and he says, this has been fulfilled in your hearing. And they're like, wait, what? And he's like, no, 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 this has been fulfilled today in your hearing. Well, the portion of scripture that he spoke about was the fact that he was anointed. Jesus claimed that he was anointed. He read the Old Testament, Isaiah 61, and he said it was about him. He claimed it was about him. So to the Jews that don't look at the cross, Jesus is going, how much more obvious do I have to get that in my hometown, I'm looking at the Bible and I'm pointing the Bible to me. It's about me. What they do, they run him out. Jews ran him out of, uh, they ran him out of Dodge because they didn't want their king. They rejected their king. Daniel chapter seven is another time when it talks about the ancient of days, the, the son of man talks about how powerful he is. This Messiah is going to be so powerful. No one's going to fall. No one's going to fight him. But yet 
that Christ died. Christ died. Why won't the Jews worship him? Because they're looking for a king. They're looking for an earthly kingdom who's going to crush everybody, who's going to kill everybody, who's going to be able to judge and not be conquered. This is why they can't get it. They can't get it. The next verse here, or the next part here in 1 Corinthians 15 says, for our sins. Christ died. That Christ died for our sins. Hooper hemone hymartia. Another Greek, right? Let me go to, uh, I, I, I think when, when people think of sins, a lot of people talk about, you know, it's an archery term. It's about missing the mark. I want to go back to where, you know, what I think about when, whenever I think about sins. Go to Exodus chapter 12. Exodus chapter 12, verse 21. Exodus 12, 21. This is uh, Moses in Egypt talking about the uh, the Passover. Then Moses called all the elders of Israel and said to them, go and select lambs for yourselves according to the clans and kill the Passover lamb. Take a bunch of hyssop and dip it in the blood that is in the basin and touch the lintel and the two doorposts with the blood that is in the basin. None of you shall go out of the door in his house until the morning for the Lord will pass through to strike the Egyptians. And when he sees the blood on the lintel and on the two doorposts, the Lord will pass over the door and will not allow the destroyer to enter your houses to strike you. The concept here is that the 10 plagues of Egypt has happened. We'll get to that in a second. The 10 plagues of Egypt are happening. The nine have happened. This is the 10th. The one thing that the Jews are going to be saved from is the blood of the lamb that's on the doorpost. And when the, when the destroyer is coming around, he's going to check the doorposts. And when he sees that lamb or he sees that lamb's blood on the doorpost, he knows everyone inside that door has been saved by the blood that's on the outside which means that a lamb, the firstborn, the chosen, the perfect blemish-free lamb, had his blood spilt. Remember, the word of God leaves everyone naked and exposed. The reason why you slit the throat is because you want to kill the creature. Your throat will be slit. You will be destroyed. These lambs were killed. They slit their throats. The blood was spilled. They painted their doorposts so that the destroyer would go, good, 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 destroy, good, good, destroy, 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 destroy. Right? Like that's, that's, that's the mission. So this is how when Jesus died for our sins, I want to paint a picture. Actually, the Bible paints a picture of how God responds to sin. Now, you might not know this, but there's 10 plagues in Egypt. There were 10 gods that the Egyptians worshipped. There were 10 gods that the Egyptians held up. And so the Israelites, the, the, the God's people, were under the oppression of a society and a culture, a, a, a kingdom that worshipped 10 gods. And those 10 plagues that went against Egypt directly correspond to those 10 gods. Whenever we say that Jesus Christ died for our sins, you need to understand God's response to sin. How does God treat sin? This is more than just missing the mark, my friends. This is understanding that any sin gets this type of wrath from God. God's wrath on the 10 plagues. They had 10 gods, 10 plagues in response. God went methodically down every single God that Egypt worshipped and said, you are bad, you are bad, you are bad. I am king, I am king, I am God. Happy, the God of the Nile, God turned the water into blood. Heket, the, God of, the goddess of fertility, water, renewal. God uh, sent the frogs from the Nile. The God of Geb, which is the God of the earth, the Egyptian God of earth. God sent lice from the dust of the earth. The God of Capri, which is the God of the, the creation, sun, and rebirth. God sent the swarm of flies from the sky. The Egyptian god Hathor was the goddess of love and pro uh, protection. God killed the cattle and the livestock. 
the goddess uh, or the goddess of uh, Isis, which is the goddess of uh, medicine and peace. God sent the ashes and boils and uh, sores on the skin and the body. The god, the goddess uh, of the sky, which is the Egyptian god Nut, hail in the form of fire fell from the sky. The god Seth is the god, the god of storms and disorder. God sent locusts from the sky. The sun god Ra, God darkened the days for three, darkened everything for three days. Pharaoh, ultimately, last one. Pharaoh was the ultimate power of Egypt. He was the power on earth. He was God on earth. He is the ultimate power. He is proof. Proof that God exists was Egypt, or uh, was the Pharaoh. God killed his firstborn, eliminated his line, showed that not even his lineage that's supposed to be divine could survive. And the Passover lamb, this was instituted after that. After Immediately after that first Passover, Moses told everybody, you will do this forever. When the Jews would go to Jerusalem every year for Passover, they would take a blemish-free, perfect lamb, the one that was probably the most productive, the one that would have been the most valuable, the one that would have been the best for that family, and they took it to Jerusalem to sacrifice it. Now think about this. You're walking. You ain't taking a train. You ain't taking a plane. Even with masks and COVID, you're not driving a car on a road. You are walking to Jerusalem. Jerusalem surrounded by mountains paths up and down and all around. It's multiple days. You're sleeping with this lamb. And all the while, this lamb is following you, knowing that you, or the lamb doesn't know this, but you know that that throat is going to be slit and its blood is going to come out. And this is the most valuable lamb, the best lamb, the most expensive lamb, the most productive lamb that you would have loved. And by the time that you're walking to Jerusalem, you would have been like, man, this thing's going to take my sin. I'm only doing this because I'm a sinner. This lamb that's right here, perfect, innocent, doesn't deserve what's going to happen to it. It's a, it's a visible reminder that whenever I get to Jerusalem, this throat's going to get slit. Think about that. According to the scriptures. So that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. I want to teach you a phrase. We're going to butcher it because I'm from Oklahoma. If you're a fellow American, kata grafe, kata grafe, according to the scriptures. Kata graphe. This is important. This is very important because this is critical. When we talk about getting in the word, when we talk about the word of God, when we talk about the Bible, when we talk about the scriptures, we need to know that the written word exists because God exists. That every written word has an author. And the Bible is about the person who gave it to us, not about what you think it means. It's about what he wants you to know through it, not what you're reading into it. Listen to the author. Don't listen to your heart. Your heart is going to lie to you. Your heart is going to lead you astray. But the scriptures, Paul is saying that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, which means something about the way that God has told people was going to be the way that it happened, which is another reason why God gives us the scriptures. He says what's going to happen. Then what happens he said was going to happen happened. And then he's like, yeah, see, now I'm, that proves that I'm real. That proves that, that what I say is true. This is why when people talk about the future, it's like, have you read Isaiah 41? God boasts about the fact that only he knows the future. So anybody else making predictions or the plan or anything else is like, this, like you don't know the future. And if you say you do, you're claiming something that God himself has said is him. Like he's reserved the future. Not me, not you, not the devil, not uh, conspiracy theories. Preach on that one. The written word points to the person who wrote it. It points to the fact that it's fulfilled. 
For every building, you have a builder. For every painting, you have a painter. For every for creation, you have a creator. For every word, you have an author. We don't see the words. We think and according believe according to them. Words are not seen. They're believed. And if you think about this, you are living in an existence of nothing but sensory perception. Your ideas aren't perceived. They're, they're believed and they're known. It's, it's a different experience. You, you don't see the words. You can see letters or combination of letters to form words. But whenever God presents himself and you are in his creation, it is self-evident that he exists. And his word, his written word, is how he chose to communicate. One example of this is Ezra. Ezra said, uh, you know, go back to Isaiah 45. Isaiah 45 is a prophecy about Cyrus 200 years before Cyrus the Great lives. Cyrus the Great sees Isaiah 45. is like, this prophesied about me? Then that means the God that prophesied about me 200 years ago is true. I'll do whatever you say. Hey, let us go back to, to worship our own God. Amen. Roger that. And so the Israelites go back. And what do they do? Ezra 7, verse 10, Ezra set his heart to study the law of the Lord and to teach the statutes and rules in Jerusalem or in Israel. They had their traditions. They had their customs. They had their heritage and their histories. They had their rabbis and they had the, their dreidels in the way that they did stuff. And it's like, this is the way we've always done it. But it didn't matter. What mattered was what God said. What matters is not what you've done or where you've come from. What matters is what does God say? The word of God is what God says, not what you think it says. It's what it says. Jesus says in John 5, 39, John 5, 39. Here's Jesus one of the times spiking the football. John 5, 39, Jesus is speaking to the Jews. And these Jews are all uppity. And they're trying to say that he's dumb and he doesn't know stuff. And he's, you know, Jesus is trying to give his witness to the Jews to prove he is who he says he is. And John uh, 539, Jesus says, you Jews, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you will have eternal life. And it is they, the scriptures, that bear witness about me. The Jews are looking in the word of God to figure out what God's plan is, to figure out what everlasting life is, to figure out what eternal life is. And Jesus is saying, you're searching the scriptures for what the scriptures are for. The scriptures are for God's eternal life. It's God's plan. It's not your plan. It's not your health, wealth, and prosperity. It's God's plan. And when you search the scriptures, you're searching for what God has stored for you, what God has promised you. And Jesus says, you're searching them. It's about me. It's about Jesus. It's, you want eternal life? Amen. It's about me. They didn't get it. They didn't get it. So whenever we say according to the scriptures, this is God's methodology. This is God's methodology. Now, I want to... I got 10, 15 minutes here. I want to make sure I end the right way. It says um, that he was buried. Okay, so this is, the, this is now verse 4, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. We're going to cross apply that in accordance with the scriptures, what I just did according to the scriptures, that he was buried. I have here two wristbands on my on my wrist. Uh, one of these was my soldier. He was killed November 8, 2010. I put his body in a bag and I carried his bag to the helicopter. When you are dead, your body don't, it, it, you're dead. When Jesus was taken from the cross, the people who witnessed that carried his body outside to his tomb. You ever carried a dead body? It doesn't help you. It's, it's just, it's there. It's dead. Why is it important that it's dead? Because if Jesus Christ died for our sins, then that means our sins are dead like Christ was dead. There's proof that he's dead. 
the proof that Christ is dead is the fact that he was put in a tomb. He was put in a tomb by people who knew him. He was put in a tomb by people who knew him for a, for a specific person that said, here's the tomb we're going to carve out. He was dead, dead. I remember the first funeral that I went to, I was like a little kid. I was, I was looking at the body. I kept expecting it to wake up. It's like, man, that kind of looks pale, but that, that's the body of the person that I know. Is it going to wake up? No, it's not going to wake up. It's dead. He just got maimed and scourged. He had hypervolemia. He had, uh, you know, asphyxiation. He ain't going to live. You kidding me? That guy's dead. Now, if Christ is that dead, how dead are your sins? If God went down the 10 plagues in Egypt to the 10 gods in Egypt, how dead do you think those sins are? If God, and you can think about this, go back and read Exodus. Exodus, whenever, you know, it says that God hardened Pharaoh's heart. God hardened Pharaoh's heart to make sure that he was methodical to kill all the other gods, to prove to everybody that no other God exists but him. So when God says that Jesus Christ died for your sins, how dead is that sin? It's dead. Dead. I, I, I can't underscore that enough. And this is why whenever, um, you know, people hear about the gospel, they're like, that guy died. Yeah, that's the point. It's the whole point. The whole point of God Almighty coming in the flesh, living a perfect life and taking your place on the cross and dying was so that the one thing, the one thing that's against you, your sin, not the cabal, not communism, not armies or tanks or, or your job loss or the vaccine or anything else, but the thing that's most against you is the thing that's separating you from God, which is sin. And how much did God kill it? He killed it so much that whenever he took the cross, he was dead. And people carried him there. Think about that. Like his body would have been maimed and bloody. It's not, it's not just like, oh man, like, oh, you know, again, graphic, get your kids out of the room. Um, we shot a guy, a lot of people. Um, we, we shot this dude and it's like, the bullet hole was like small. There's only one, like one small bullet hole. There's no exit wound. So like one small exit wound, boom. And there wasn't even really that much blood, but he was dead. And I was like, man, that guy's dead. And it was, it was, you know, he was dead. Jesus would have been just viciously ripped apart. This isn't like a, a clean kill. This is not like it's, you know, uh, it's been embalmed and kind of stitched up and the, the, the mor morticians made it sexy and nice and, and presentable. This is a bloody body. Naked, humiliated, broken, ripped apart. And you're going to carry it from the cross up on a hill. You're going to carry that bloody, slippery, mutilated corpse down to where the tombs are? Don't talk to me about God doesn't care about your sin. You noticed how he died? You recognize how he died? Now this last part. This is the best part. He rose and that he, ra and that he was raised on the third day. Raised. You understand the Jewish perspective of uh, resurrection was very, very minimal. They believed in it. Some of them did. Some of them did not. The Pharisees did. The Sadducees did not believe in the resurrection. Daniel chapter 12, verse 2. Daniel chapter 12, verse 2 is a critical verse for the Jewish at the time understanding of what resurrection was. Daniel chapter 12, verse 2 says, uh, And many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life and some to shame and everlasting contempt. So this would have been the basis for whenever Martha is speaking to Jesus in John chapter 11, Jesus says he will live again. And Martha's like, yeah, 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 yeah I know, I know, I know. I know he's, I know he's going to live. I know he's going to rise from the grave. And Jesus is like, no, 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 you don't understand. John chapter 11. Let's go to John 11. 
John 11 um, talks about... He says uh, he is the resurrection. Um, I did not write this down, so of course I'm going to be bad. It's John 11. Um, uh, John 11, 21, Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been there, my brother would not have died. But even now I know that whatever you ask of God, God will give it to you. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, yeah, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. That's, that is Daniel chapter 12, verse two. That is Martha referencing and believing Daniel 12, verse two. Um, Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet he shall live, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? She said to him, yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ. There goes the Christ again. Who's the Christ? Earthly kingdom. You are the Christ, son of God, who is coming into the world. She had head knowledge. She had what the scriptures said, but she didn't understand. She didn't understand, and she was not thinking about what they actually meant because they hadn't been revealed to her yet. But whenever Corinthians, whenever Paul is writing to the church of Corinth and he's saying that for I delivered to you a first importance that I have also received, that Christ died for our sins, according to the scriptures, that he was buried and that he was raised on the third day, according to the scriptures. That is the gospel, my friends. The gospel is that in Jesus, you are no longer punished for your sins because God has more so than the 10 plagues against Egypt. God has punished his sins. God has punished our sins by killing his own son on the cross. And that whenever he rose from the grave, as Paul continues to go on, verses 5 through 8, Paul says, Peter saw him, James saw him, those dudes saw him, and then never I saw him. So all these people are over here going, I saw Jesus, I saw Jesus, I saw Jesus. Thomas, Jesus comes to to Thomas. Thomas, doubting Thomas, I'm not going to believe that guy rose from the grave until I see the holes in his hands. Jesus shows up and he's like, wait, what, these? Put your hand here, Thomas. Here's your proof. Thomas was like, oh, you're God. He goes, you know, blessed are those who, who believe and do not see. See, you who believe the gospel, believe what Jesus says because the gospel tells you to, because the, the scriptures tell you to. And that resurrection, think about how good God is. We're not just talking about overcoming sin and death. We're talking about the promise of life. See, God is so good that he's not just going to take away your problems. He's going to give you what he has. You receive the gospel. That's a gift. Whenever someone tells you about the gospel, that's them giving it to you. You are loving other people because you're bringing to them eternity. You're bringing them the eternal salvation for their souls. And if they don't believe it, if they mishandle it, if they reject it, if they deny it, then that is because they love their sin more than they love Jesus. But when we take the gospel, the simplicity of the gospel, little kids understand this. People from Harvard and astrophysicists are going to try to string theory and quantum physics their way into the gospel, and they can't do it. They can't do it because they're not going to humble themselves. They won't humble themselves to consider that Almighty God, creator of all things, gave us a book. That the author of that book communicated a very specific way, a very specific plan, thousands of years telling us in the future, Genesis 3.15, here's what I'm going to do, and then he does it and people still don't believe it. Go see those gymnast Jews. Ask them about Isaiah 53. They ain't going to get it. They're not going to get it. They're going to twist it and say, well, you know, it's according to the people who live according to the law. Do you really slit goat's throat now, homie? Are you really doing the stuff that the Bible tells you to? 
Are you trying to, to, to gallivant around like you're a nominal Jew? I spin the dreidel, therefore I'm good. No, no. The gospel is that you need to believe in the gospel of Jesus Christ, that he died for your sins according to the scriptures, and he rose, uh, that he was buried and he rose three days later. That's what the gospel is. It's of a, it's a first importance. Everything else Paul writes, and it's all important. I'm not saying that it's not the word of God. I'm saying that Paul, by way of the Holy Spirit, said that this is of first importance. It's the most um, consequential statement that we have. It's the most consequential story is the gospel of Jesus Christ. And when you think about what that resurrection means, it's a promise. It's a promise that eternal life not only is true, not only is good, but can't be taken away. Because Christ rose from the grave. They couldn't stop him. They posted a century. The Romans posted a century. They said, put two dudes on that big tomb with that big heavy rock and make sure the guy that said, or the guy that you stabbed and we maimed and we killed with the asphyxiation and the, the hypovolemia, make sure that dude stays dead. Are you kidding me? Why would they put people on the tomb? Well, because they thought the apostles were going to steal it, right? The apostles. Numbering 12 in number, the most persecuted, politically uh, persecuted people just saw their leader get killed. I, I don't know about you, but like if my leader kills, I'm not going to have a bold Navy SEAL surgical operation to go against the state that just killed him to try to steal his body away so I can lie to everybody that, hey, he lived, guys. Trust me. No, no, it's, it's, it's amazing. The proof, the evidence that the Bible has, but what's better than the evidence is the truth and the love of the gospel. Father, thank you for your gospel. Thank you for your word. Thank you for Jesus. Thank you for the victory we have over sin and death and the promise of eternal life. Um, God, I love you. I pray that you work on the hearts of the people who heard it, inspire them to, if they need to, repent of their sin and believe the gospel so that they can enjoy the everlasting life that you've promised them, that you've already demonstrated and already made a way for them. And then if they do believe it, Father, I'd ask that you convict them and send them off into your world. Send them off to bring other people to you, to give the gift of the gospel to other people who need it, just like they do, just like I do. Thank you for your Bible. Thank you for um, Jesus. It's in your son's holy name we pray. Amen. This has been Getting in the Word with Pastor Stuart Guthrie. Thank you for listening to our weekly podcast. And be sure to visit us online at familybiblefellowship.org. And come see us in person on Sundays at 11 a.m.